Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for part three of a three-part conversation with Dr. Brian Bausch and host Michael Lerner as they discuss integrative oncology. Brian Bausch, resuming our conversation about integrative cancer therapies. Um, and we are really in the middle of um, hearing from you about a series of the specific uh, remedies that you found useful. So where would you take us from here? Um, <clears throat> I think talking about some of the hormone-related cancers um, would be a, as a general topic and then specifically within that right. <clears throat> breast, um, ovarian, prostate, testicular. Great. <clears throat> so um, with breast cancer therapies, I, I'm, I guess most of you at this point know that there are estrogen receptor positive breast cancers, estrogen receptor negative breast cancers, and HER2 new positive breast cancers. Um, and then there's what's called triple negative breast cancers. So those are the those are kind of the four, well, actually, it's, those are the three biggest, because if they're estrogen negative and they're HER2 negative then they're, then they're, um, uh, and progesterone negative, then they're triple negatives. So what that means is that estrogen has the potential for possibly triggering and accelerating the growth of certain types of uh, breast cancers, not only in women, but in men. And although it's hardly ever talked about, there is an incidence of breast cancer in men that comes out to be about 100th the incidence of breast cancer in women, and it has all the same implications as it does in women. You've probably seen some men who've come through here mm -hmm. through the Cancer Health Program mm -hmm. with it. Um, so the, and there are um, genetic tests now that can sometimes predict the um, <coughs> likelihood of a woman getting breast cancer or not. They're not 100% in terms of their accuracy. But there's definitely a strong familial link. Um, if a woman uh, has a mother or a um, sister who has had breast cancer, then she's at significantly higher risk for developing breast cancer. African-American women have higher rates of breast cancer um, than non-African-Americans. And <clears throat> if it's an estrogen receptor, and so what they do when somebody has a a breast tumor is the tumor is usually removed, is biopsied, sometimes removed completely at the time of the biopsy and, and studied not only for the cell type, which is what all pathology uh, examinations look at, but also to find out if it um, has the markings of being an estrogen receptor positive cancer, um, progesterone receptor positive cancer, um, or um, another uh, substance in the body called HER2-NU, uh, which is a, uh, a surface marker on the cancer cells. Estrogen receptor positive cancers, besides conventional surgery, chemotherapy, radiation, are often treated with estrogen-blocking drugs. And the estrogen-blocking drugs, the one you know th that's been around forever is tamoxifen. Um, it, is effective. It's still used, um, and the uh, and the other uh, drugs are um, 
they work in a slightly different pathway, but they have the same ultimate effect of lowering the amount of estrogen in the body that has the potential for bring, making the cancer come back. So the assumption here is that the initial breast cancer is removed. There may not be any other signs of breast cancer in the body, you know, by imaging, by scans, by the blood tests that are used, but there are probably some stray cancer cells somewhere around that can land and then at some point start growing again, and that's what metastatic cancer is, is when it comes back and starts spreading to other parts of the body, liver, lung, brain, um, various other um, organs in the body. If the woman is also treated, or the man is also treated with an estrogen blocking drug for a period of five years seems to be about the average now for these different drugs, it lowers the risk of recurrence of that cancer significantly. The problem has always been that the, that the estrogen blocking drugs have to be taken long term and they're not free of side effects. So that um, the issue with tamoxifen has always been that it actually increases the risk for uterine cancer, not by a lot, but by you know, a significant percentage. And it also increases the risk for um, formation of blood clots in the veins. And then blood clots can, can be locally uncomfortable, but can also break through and travel um, to the lungs and cause a pulmonary embolus, which can be a fatal condition. It can be pretty scary. <clears throat> The aromatase inhibitors, which is the other class of estrogen-blocking drugs, things like Femara and Aromacin, um, they work differently. Um, I'm sorry, let's go back to tamoxifen. Tamoxifen is called a SERM, S-E-R-M, S-E-R-M, which means Selective Estrogen Receptor Modulator. And so the tamoxifen acts like a phony estrogen that sits on the estrogen receptors and blocks the uptake of natural estrogen that's coming from the woman's body. So that even though many women are postmenopausal and not producing a lot of estrogen, they're still producing estrogen. And most of it at that point comes from the adrenal gland instead of from the ovary. Um, it comes from adrenal testosterone, which, which comes from DHEA and it is converted into estrogen through a pathway called the aromatase pathway. The aromatase inhibitors block this enzyme, aromatase, which is responsible for that conversion, so it keeps, it keeps it in the form of testosterone. It doesn't get to estrogen, and so the decreased estrogen then downregulates the tendency for, these can for cancer cells to grow and to take off again. <clears throat> Um, HER2 new, which is this other surface um, protein uh, marker that occurs, is very susceptible to a landmark drug that first showed up, I guess, about 12 years ago called Herceptin. I think many of you have heard of that. And women who, and that's given by intravenous injection, the others are oral treatments. And if Herceptin is given for one year, um, after the woman has finished with radiation, chemotherapy, surgery, whatever she's going to go through, and has that type of cancer, it dramatically reduces the risk of it recurring or metastasizing. A um, couple of other tidbits about breast cancer are that although radiation is you know, part and parcel of the whole treatment of early-stage breast cancer, uh, <clears throat> radiation itself decreases the risk of recurrence of cancer in that breast. by It decreases the percentage of recurrence of cancer in the breast only by about 50%.
but it does nothing in terms of preventing metastasis or preventing a later recurrence uh, elsewhere in the body. And so, and it's a big price. I mean, radiation is not a walk in the park. I'm sure there are people here who have gone through it. Um, there's a lot of local discomfort. There's a lot of skin burning that can occur. There's fibrosis that can occur, contraction of the tissues. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a tough road to go through. And so, I, you know, my take on it has always been that there needs to be really good reason um, to do radiation. And if there's something that's going to be dropped for an aggressive cancer, if there's something that's going to be dropped out, radiation would be the first thing I would drop out with surgery and chemotherapy, if the chemotherapy is necessary, being the main ones to keep in. In the last several years, we've seen the advent of genetic testing, which has really changed the field uh, to some degree. The genetic testing does what they call a 23-gene array, and they're actually examining the tumor for different genes that would predict the likelihood of recurrence of the cancer. If somebody has a very low score on one of these gene tests, then it's not likely that chemotherapy is going to be offered because it's probably not going to add much you know, in terms of benefit. Um, but the chemotherapy also has lots of side effects, as you know. Um, if someone has a very high score on the genetic testing, then you can bet that chemotherapy is going to be recommended as part of the treatment. In terms of the, let's see if there's anything else I want to say just about the kind of the gym. I think that's a pretty good look at the overall treatment um, that, that goes down with breast cancer. So what did we have to offer specifically in the, um, in the onc field, um, as Michael calls it? Um, because some women were not going to take any of the estrogen blockers because they did not want to deal with the side effects or because they had started taking them and started experiencing the side effects. The aromatase inhibitors, the main side effect that keeps people, you know, that takes people away from it is joint pain. There's significant joint pain that occurs in approximately 35 to 40 percent of women who take aromatase inhibitors. And so that there's a pretty significant dropout rate uh, where people will stop taking it after they've started. And you need to take it for you know, anywhere from two to five years for it to really be of benefit. Um, so there's another pathway uh, of estrogen metabolism in the body whereby um, estrone as the parent estrogen compound um, has several different forms. 2-hydroxyestrone, 4-hydroxyestrone, and 16-hydroxyestrone. 2-hydroxyestrone has many of the benefits of estrogen in terms of you know, being essential for normal tissue maturation, growth, and health, but it doesn't stimulate breast cancer cells. 4-hydroxyestrone does and 16-hydroxyestrone does, and normally there's a conversion of one to the other. Um, so another way of approaching is, this would be, how do we block the conversion of 2-hydroxyestrone to 16-hydroxyestrone? Well, there is a natural substance in broccoli that does exactly that. It's called diindolylmethane, abbreviated D-I-M. And it can be taken as an oral supplement. Um, there are mainstream studies on it, but again, because it's not a potential blockbuster drug, we don't have the several million dollar studies that are going to have the statistical power to convince the rest of the medical community and the oncology community that it's going to be anywhere near as effective. 
but we've used it for years, both alongside the other estrogen-blocking drugs, and and sometimes, you know, you know, standalone because someone couldn't tolerate the other estrogen-blocking drugs, and we've seen good results with it. So this is diindolomethane (DIM). Some of you are probably familiar with that. Now, broccoli is a pretty amazing substance, as are some of the other coal family <coughs> plants. Um, you know, cabbage, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, uh, kale, cabbage. They also um, produce something called sulforaphane, and sulforaphane has, also has direct um, cancer-preventing effects. And there is another compound in broccoli seeds called glucosinolate, like glucose and then I-N-O-L-A-T-E. And that one also has a direct anti-cancer effect. It seems, Chris and I were arguing about this on the way over here today. Um, I had thought that sulforaphane and glucosinolates had independent modes of action. Um, Chris thinks that one converts to the other. Um, but I'm not sure. I haven't had a connection to actually look it up. Okay. So anyway, maybe we'll get that and get it down for you so we can go on the website once we figure that out. But in any case, it's a really good idea with, you know, with all cancers to be using broccoli derivatives because of the sulforaphanes. But in the specific case of breast cancer that is estrogen receptor positive, diendolomethane is, that's the specific substance that one would want to be taking. Um, are you going to change topics now? No. I'm staying Are here for a second. Are you going to talk about 2-methoxyestradiol? I wasn't going to go there, but would you like to jump in and say that? Well, I just wanted to say that the, from my work and my research, the, the most protective compound is after you have the 2-hydroxy, you convert that via a methylation enzyme, catechol-methyltransferase, to 2-methoxyestradiol, which actually has anti-carcinogenic, anti-proliferative properties. That's the molecule that, the first stage is 2-hydroxy, that you get there with DIM, you know, methane, broccoli, having sufficient iodine, and having sufficient selenium. Then you want to do the next step, which is converting the 2-hydroxy the to the 2-methoxy. And that is, is assisted by having sufficient methylation. or extra methyl B12, yes. methylfolate, okay, trimethylglycine. And then with regard to the four, which is the most, you know, potentially carcinogenic, because it can convert to 3,4-quinone, you can nullify the effect of the four hydroxy by the same methyltransferase enzyme, assisted by B methyl B12 and methylfolate, and convert that to 4-methoxyestradiol, which is neutralized. It neutralizes the molecule so that it's no longer dangerous. Great, thank you for that. And Debbie Downer's back. Methyl B12 is potentially on the block along with glutathione. <laughs> oral and IV? Chris, is it going to be oral and IV, do you know? They haven't clarified that. I assume the injectable because they yeah. would have to remove a lot of products if, mm -hmm. if they removed that. That's, that's that's really nice. Wow. That is unbelievable. Okay. Um, so, um, testosterone is not necessarily a bad thing for women. I mean, women have testosterone naturally. It's just that men have a lot more of it. Um, testosterone is the, the hormone that is the most responsible for libido. 
um, and most people don't want to give that up and actually, you know, often welcome some help in that area, especially as we age. Um, so this idea of blocking the conversion of testosterone to, est to, the, to, the, to estrogen um, is, not, is not a bad thing. You know, you know, by blocking it, you're actually accumulating a bit more testosterone. <clears throat> testosterone helps muscle mass, it helps mood, um, and it helps libido. So, um, let's see. I don't know of any natural um, substances that are useful in the treatment of um, HER2 new positive cancer specifically. I think Herceptin's really had that one locked up for a long time. Um, oh, I had, did I mention calcium deglucurate before for no. detox? Okay, so a little bit of gastrointestinal physiology here. Um, one of the main jobs of the liver is to help to get rid of toxic substances in the body, which can also include metabolites of hormones that we've produced. And the way, it, so the liver cells um, go through their process of sometimes binding the toxins to other substances, and then they secrete it into the bile, which is manufactured in the liver. Bile gets stored in the gallbladder, and then the gallbladder squirts that bile into the intestine under the influence of a meal coming through, especially a fatty meal. The bile, besides um, containing these toxic substances, also contains um, it has an emulsifying property so that it takes fat and it breaks the fat down into microscopic droplets so that the enzymes produced by the pancreas can actually help to digest the fats and allow you to absorb the fats into your system. So bile has this dual mode of action, detoxifying and helping with fat, um, uh, with, with, with fat digestion. Once the bile has gotten into the intestinal tract, Sometimes the substances that it's taken down there, including the toxins and some of these breakdown products of the hormones, are reabsorbed from the intestinal tract and get back into the circulation and then keep, keep going around so that we don't really get rid of them. And that's called the enterohepatic recirculation. Um, it's not a great thing if you're trying to get rid of toxins. You want stuff to be taken out and carried out with the stool when you have your next bowel movement. So there are some strategies that have been developed to try to prevent that recir the enterohepatic recirculation from carrying that stuff back into the system instead of getting excreted. And one of them is a substance called calcium deglucurate, G-L-U-C-A-R-A-T-E. And it's not about the calcium in it. Calcium is just the salt that binds the glucaric acid. And glucaric acid interferes with an enzyme that's responsible for allowing these substances to get reabsorbed into the body. So giving calcium deglucurate as an over-the-counter supplement um, in any kind of cancer is good for detoxification, but especially in the, uh, and, and also for detoxification for people with other conditions that are non-cancer related. Um, and um, it also has this component of being able to reduce the hormone load as well. So if you've got too much estrogen on board and you're trying to get it down naturally, the calcium deglucurate works for that as well. Okay. Um, prostate cancer, 
is the other big hormonal cancer that um, we're in. Before we go to prostate for just a sec, because we have more people with breast cancer in the Cancer Health Program than any other cancer, and because women are much more interested in integrative therapies than men, and because breast cancer is the primary reason that women get interested in integrative therapies in general, you've given some specifics on breast cancer, but what is a broader sense of the treatment strategy on breast cancer than the specifics that you gave? And one specific question, and forgive me, I have no medical technical knowledge, but my understanding is that when they when you, and correct me if I'm wrong, when you look at a tumor, depending on where you slice it, you may get different readings of what a specific cancer is that may differ from place to place in a, even in an individual tumor. Um, what, what about these uh, labs that um, people send tumor samples to that test the tumor sample against different chemotherapies? Those labs are controversial. Do you find them useful? And if so, which labs do you use and how? I would have thought that Mark or Keith would have covered this, but I'm happy to talk about it Well, but the point is that these are each separate. In other words, people won't necessarily have watched the other. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Sure. So um, there's an area of investigation called chemosensitivity testing. Yeah with the idea that if you can take somebody's specific tumor cells from a biopsy, keep those cells alive in a tissue culture, and then subject them to various agents to see what prevents the growth of those cells, then it gives you an idea what is likely to work better with that particular patient based on their tumor's response um, than just the general idea. Well, you know, the way we got to cisplatinum, tax, you know, ACT or, you know, or CT as being the combination chemotherapy drugs that are used for all breast cancers, this then gives a more specific view of, okay, this is a chemotherapy that's more likely to work and that one's not as likely to work because it didn't kill the cells in tissue culture. Um, is that clear? Yeah. So the, the labs that we've used historically have been the Weisenthal Cancer Center in Los Angeles. Um, and to utilize that, the biopsy has to be done in a special way because traditionally biopsies are done by taking a piece of the tumor, preserving it immediately in formaldehyde, which kills the cells, but also prevents them from degrading, putting them in a microtome, which is a machine that slices them into ultra-thin sections, putting those little thin sections on a microscope slide, staining it with various biological stains, and then reading it. And then the pathologist reads it and says, this is what I see. These are the types of of tumor cells that are present. Um, So if somebody's gonna have chemosensitivity testing done, they have to have a, a special transport kit in the operating room ready to receive the cells, and they need to go out within 24 hours, you know, shipped FedEx to either Weisenthal Cancer Center um, or Rational Therapeutics in Long Beach, which is run by Dr. Robert Nagorny, N-A-G-O-U-R-N-E-Y. And is there a distinction between... Weisenthal and Nagorny, I believe, were originally partners? 
Well, I think, ago. yeah. Is there, a dist- is there a significant distinction between the way Rosenthal does it and the way Nagorny does? There are some differences and there's some overlap. Um, Nagorny is an oncologist, is a practicing right. oncologist right. with the lab, you know, doing this testing as, mm. you know, his, you know, a side business. Um, Larry Weisenthal is a researcher. He's a PhD researcher and not an oncologist, and he's very bright. It was always kind of a toss-up for me as to which one, you know, I, you know, I was going to use. Um, you know, Larry, you know, Weisenthal would do, a, would be able to check for a few other things than Nagorny would, and vice versa. Um, Rational Therapeutics was a bit more expensive. You know, these tests usually are between three and five thousand um, dollars, and so, you know, it sometimes cost was a consideration. But I always felt like I got really pretty good information. Um, and you know, and what Mark and I, Renneker and I decided a long time ago is that we actually thought that those tests were more useful in telling you what not to use. That's what I've heard, that they do a better job of telling you what not to use. Right, but of the things that look like they work in the test tube, it's not a sure thing, but at least you can eliminate a portion. Which is a huge deal. It's a huge deal. Because in other words, just to be clear about this, if it doesn't work in the test tube and it's that that's where it's it's there's more evidence that it won't work in real life, right. and that means you're not going to do the wrong chemotherapy, right. which is just a huge deal, right. you know. So uh, the question is, why doesn't mainstream oncology embrace this and right. use it? Beats the hell out of me. Well, there was a period of <laughs> yeah. time I actually know this when uh, uh, chemosensitivity testing was a rising star in mainstream oncology. Mm-hmm. And then they decided, for whatever set of reasons, that it, it wasn't good. Yeah, and it's that whatever set of reasons right. that I just yeah. never got. Yeah. But the point is that when we're looking at breast cancer was what brought this thing up, that having the chemosensitivity testing done, and as you said, there may be good reasons if you're going to drop something, and I haven't heard anybody say this so clearly before, to drop the radiation because it only prevents the recurrence in that breast and has no impact on the recurrence uh, elsewhere in the body. So if, if you have somebody who's trying to minimize the toxicity of treatment, right, and you drop the radiation but keep the chemo, then you really want to be sure, as you can be, that you're getting the right chemo and therefore using one of these chemosensitivity testing labs, either Weisenthal mm-hmm. or Rational Therapeutics, is a significant thing. Agreed. So the other piece of this, which may be completely separate, is would different slices of the tumor, depending on where it was in the tumor, show different uh, things, or would it be consistent throughout? Um, it usually has to do with a different type of tumor coexisting I see. rather than different aspects of the same tumor. I see. So, for example, DCIS, yeah. DCIS, which is ductal carcinoma in situ, not uncommonly coexists with lobular or ductal invasive cancer. I see. And so you can sometimes in the same specimen see both of those. And I that, see. And it, makes it more, and it makes treatment more complicated. Okay. Thank you. There are some labs out of the country that are doing chemosensitivity testing on blood samples. Um, And what they're looking for is what they call circulating tumor cells. Circulating tumor cells are used to be pretty experimental. They're now becoming a little bit more mainstream in a way of looking to see if somebody is at risk for likelihood of recurrence. So in other words, if you see some, you know, some cells that have broken off from the primary tumor and you, you know, you manage to 
find them in the bloodstream, then you know the person's at higher risk for developing metastasis because eventually those cells are going to land somewhere, and if the conditions are favorable, they're going to start to grow. Um, there's a lab in Greece that people have been using. There is another one in Germany. Um, I have looked at the results. I'm not impressed. Okay. I think it's a lot of money being thrown down the drain. Yeah. I don't know what your sense on those is, but I haven't been very impressed right. with those. There's some here as well that uh, mm -hmm. can be done. Mm -hmm. Have you seen value? I haven't run enough of them yet. Can you speak up a little bit? Sorry. Yeah. I haven't run enough of them yet to comment, but I know at UCSF they are starting to use them now. The CTCs. Looking for CTCs, at least in doing, terms of... But they're not doing chemosensitivity testing. Right. Yeah. right. Right. So, yeah, I think it's very valuable. Okay. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Um, how does the Oconotype uh, follow-up test relate to... Oncotype is actually... I mean, Oncotype. It. Yeah, it's, it's the 23 array that's, that's gene analysis. That's what that is. Right, and it comes with a percentage of likelihood of recurrence based on the genes that are seen. Now, just going to that gene thing for a moment. My understanding, and again, it's rudimentary, is that as they start doing the gene testing, they find that a breast cancer or a colon cancer, whatever it is, there may be totally different uh, genotypes. Is that what it is? So that a breast cancer and a colon cancer may have more in common or than the breast cancer would have with other breast cancers. Is that correct, basically? Yeah, this is heretical new information. Right. So the point is, with this heretical new information, and by the way, Medicare is now reimbursing for the genetic testing. Did you know that? Yeah, I did know that. Yeah. yeah. With, Which, specific, with some very specific labs, and they're not my favorite ones necessarily. Okay, but, but it's still but a they big... Do, they do reimburse for oncotype, and they have for a few years. Right. And that's, that's huge. So it's a big deal. You're listening to part three of a three-part TNS conversation with Dr. Brian Bausch and host Michael Lerner. So the question is, given that a breast cancer, for example, might be from totally different genotypes, yeah. is that the right word? How does that impact um, uh, chemotherapy choices? Right now, it doesn't. But it should, right? It, it, I think that we'll probably get there. But uh, it's, it's not ready for prime time. It's, it's not happening yet. But if, for example, just this is me being naive, suppose that one of the genotypes was, say, uh, breast and colon cancer, for example, and there were several chemotherapies for breast cancer and several others for colon cancer. I'm not sure that's a good example. But if, if it had the colon cancer commonality for a subset of breast cancers, would that provide information that was useful to the choice among breast cancer? Not among conventional oncologists, okay. but you know, with enough research, yeah. um, you know, like the kind that you know Mark and some of the rest of us do, and yeah. Dave Schlosser, um, that might be able to be discoverable. Yeah, I see. Um, but it's also a place where chemosensitivity testing might have some really useful. Okay, thank you. Because, and you know, when you look at Larry Weisenthal's results, sometimes he'll come up with a chemotherapy drug being recommended for a tumor type, and usually that chemotherapy is reserved for something completely different. And right. No, but this is what we're seeing. Mm. So. And is chemosensitivity testing effective for the circulating cancers? For you mean for blood cancers? Mm -hmm. um, I have not had any experience with any of the blood cancers, so I can't, I can't answer that. I don't know. Thank you. Only solid tumors. I, I have to say a word, if it's okay, in defense of estrogen. 
Um, this is, I hesitate to bring it up because it's such a kind of deep topic, but I do want to say there's only one double-blind placebo-controlled trial that looks at estradiol, topical bioidentical estradiol, and real progesterone, oral progesterone. Uh, and in that study, there was no increase in breast cancer. It's just one study. The only other study that I think is pertinent is the primary alone arm of, uh, of WHI, the Women's Health Initiative study. Women on Premarin alone for 7.2 years had a decreased risk of breast cancer. It was only right. And they were restudied, uh, they reported out again in 2014, looked at them again. Persistent decrease in breast cancer risk, 23% control to the placebo group. But increased risk of urine cancer with estrogen alone. Well, yeah, so those women all had hysterectomies. We don't we don't okay. give we don't give estrogen right. alone to women right. who have uteruses. Right. Absolutely, very good point, right. right? For sure. But I just want to say that um, you know it's important to keep in mind that estradiol has a tremendous number of anti-inflammatory properties. There's reasons why estradiol could have protective effects in terms of breast cancer. Early pregnancy, which is a very high estrogen state, is protected against breast cancer, right? So there are a lot of reasons to be at least open-minded about this question. Dr. Lyos, who is a breast pathologist specialist who uh, is based in Tiburon, but unfortunately is retiring now, but he has two main themes, and one is that... Uh, you know, breast cancer overall is, is often overtreated. DCIS is overtreated. Uh, you know, it's kind of, DCIS officially is a, is a pre-cancer, but often there's extreme treatments, etc. The second thing that he believes strongly is that uh, estrogen is not a cause of breast cancer and that after breast cancer, he believes, as I do, that a year out, it is probably uh, a good idea to do hormone replacement. He gave me three papers that show better outcomes for people on hormone replacement in terms of cancer recurrence, in terms of breast cancer recurrence, and in terms of all-cause mortality. So there's many, many questions, I'm sure, inside this little, you know, amount of information I'm giving here, but I just want to I just want to put it on the table Thank because you I that. think it's important thing to yeah. to at least consider. Do you want to comment on that? No, no, only that um, for many women, life without estrogen isn't much fun. Oh, no, absolutely. Just, yeah, absolutely. And, and the new research, the cardiovascular research, mm -hmm. is that you know there is all-cause mortality, <laughs> strokes, and heart attacks are mm -hmm. significantly decreased on estrogen replacement. The longer you're on it, the bigger your decrease in um, uh, heart attack, strokes, and all-cause mortality. Thank so you. the cardiology research is tremendous, and of course in the work I'm doing with Alzheimer's, the brain, the brain is full of estrogen receptors, and the estradiol has a tremendously trophic effect on the parts of the brain that deteriorate in Alzheimer's disease. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Great. Thanks, Ann. So on to prostate cancer, oh, yeah. and 
As we start the prostate cancer, let me just preface it with this. We, we did a, a wonderful conversation with Dean Ornish, whose uh, work on prostate cancer, as you know, he just, for those who don't know, Dean Ornish is a colleague who did pioneering re- research showing that lifestyle therapy actually reversed coronary artery disease. And so he's had a tremendous uh, interest in, I mean, it also helps with diabetes and other things, had a tremendous interest in whether this was true of cancer. And so specific cancer he chose was uh, prostate cancer, and he's done controlled clinical trials, and uh, the lifestyle therapies briefly uh, have done well with uh, prostate cancers with a uh, sufficiently low Gleason index. And he, he just gave a talk on the alternatives in prostate cancer, in which his conclusion, at least, was that if you had a prostate cancer where you could do wait and watch and undertook the lifestyle therapies, that it was, from his point of view, clearly better than the other uh, surgical or radiation interventions. So that's just a little brief state of my knowledge, and I look forward to your wisdom on this. Actually, could you talk a little bit about the lifestyle therapies that he promoted and used in his studies? So, again? as I said, we, we work with seven pillars of health. But he would too, but his four are diet, stress reduction, exercise, and finding love and support in your life. And so his is a yoga-based program for the stress reduction, and then the diet is a low-fat diet, and uh, then uh, the exercise and social support are more obvious. Now, clearly, there's been a big, this may be what you're getting at, there's been a big fight between Dean and a number of other people on the diet piece of this. And so now uh, some of the functional medicine folks who tend toward the paleo or neo-paleo have really taken him on very directly as to whether uh, a paleo or neo-paleo diet is better than the low-fat diet, and they all defend those positions. Is the way I would put it. That's I don't, what I. Yeah. What? That's what I. Yeah. With my position. Right. 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 <laughs> so, in the same way that we talked about the, you know, how breast cancer is diagnosed and you know treated, um, prostate cancer has a pretty pro forma way of being looked at in this country. Um, the, the, the current standard is for a man to um, have a, after the age of 40, to have an annual digital rectal examination, meaning the doctor puts a finger into the rectum, feels the prostate gland, feels for enlargement and or the presence of any nodules or any asymmetry. Um, in addition to that, a test, a blood test is done called a PSA, which stands for prostate specific antigen. And PSA most commonly is elevated in the presence of prostate cancer, but it can also be elevated in the presence of a benign enlargement of the prostate so that it's not specific. But if a PSA test shows up positive, even if the digital exam is normal, if, there's, if the PSA is high, um, it's pretty sure that the guy's gonna be, wind up with a biopsy and they do a, a transrectal needle biopsy. Um, and then they, you know, they get the cells out and they look at them and they have what's called a Gleason score, G-L-E-E-S-O-N, with Gleason's down in like the four or five range being considered to be indolent, meaning there is cancer present, but it doesn't look aggressive. And when, they, when the scores get up to seven, eight or nine, then it's considered to be an aggressive cancer and more aggressive therapy is called for. 
So once that happens, the treatment options are um, radical prostatectomy, which is an operation um, that's done through an, uh, through an incision um, uh, in the abdomen um, where the prostate gland is isolated, identified, and removed in toto. And they also try to sample a little bit of the tissue around the prostate gland to see if there are any lymph nodes involved. Um, another treatment mode is to use um, uh, a series of um, roughly 40 radiation treatments directed to the prostate gland to completely kill the gland and some of the surrounding tissues. And the other treatment mode that's most commonly available is called um, radiation seed implant therapy, where they take little granules or seeds of radioactive material and implant them directly into the prostate gland through a needle and leave them in there. And then they give out their radiation over a defined period of time, and that radiation kills the prostate, all the prostate cells. They're not trying to kill just the, the cancer. They just go in for the whole thing. Um, one other somewhat newer treatment is using high-intensity focused ultrasound. Um, to kill the prostate uh, cancer and, and the, the gland, which is just starting to be accepted in this country as a mainstream treatment. For years, several of the urologists from this country who knew about it would actually take their patients to either Mexico or the Dominican Republic, where they would have a clinic set up where they could provide that treatment outside of the FDA's purview and regulation. But um, I'm just hearing now that uh, one of the urologists that I know of is now able to do it here. So that's changed. Um, it's, a it's a less toxic form of treatment, and from the data that's available, it looks like it's every bit as effective as any of the other kinds. The last analysis that I looked at, which is probably two years ago, looking at the effectiveness of the various types of prostate cancer treatment, it did look like there was a slight survival advantage, meaning long-term survival after diagnosis, with the radical prostatectomy operation. But that's also the one that's fraught with the most in terms of complications, the complications being impotence um, and urinary dysfunction, including incontinence. Um, so it's a big price to pay, um, potentially to get rid of it. But you know there are also robotic surgeries that are done now, um, very, very precise, where they're able to do nerve-sparing prostatectomies mm -hmm. so that there's a lower incidence of those complications that I've mentioned. And, and those need to be done by a true expert in the field. And actually, UCSF has you know, one of the best um, treatment programs around for that if someone were going to get a surgery for that. Um, so that's treatment of the early-stage prostate cancer. Once the horse is out of the barn, it's a different story. Once it's spread into the local lymph nodes or metastasized to the bones, which is a favorite place for it to go, then you're looking at systemic hormonal therapy in the same way we were looking at breast cancer. And here, what's been found is that using drugs that block the effect of testosterone will, will dramatically slow the growth of the prostate cancer. And those drugs are Lupron, um, which works on the pituitary gland, and Casadex, which works on the adrenal gland. So by turning off the pituitary's stimulation of the testicles, it shuts down the production of testosterone from the testicles. And by turning off the adrenal gland's production of testosterone, remember adrenals, DHEA, testosterone in women, by shutting that down, it effectively shuts down pretty much all the testosterone production uh, in the body. That's been the standard 
treatment for a number of years. And Lupron is a hard drug to take, if any of you have ever taken it. It causes really significant fatigue. It causes really significant cognitive dysfunction. Um, Casadex isn't quite as difficult, but... And then also there are chemotherapies that are used, and now there are immunotherapies that are starting to be used, um, as well as some molecular targeting agents for the metastatic forms of prostate cancer that have gotten very aggressive and spread to other parts of the body. Uh, and, um, and in spite of that, there are you know, some types of very aggressive prostate cancer that just don't respond well necessarily to anything, and, um, and they can be you know, quite painful. But what I've seen over the years is that the overall the treatment of prostate cancer has really come of age in allowing men to live longer um, with um, fewer uh, negative symptoms, um, some of the pain and, and dysfunction that it causes. So besides the lifestyle intervention, which I also believe is very important, although I disagree with the diet part of um, Dean Ornish's In other words, program. you're paleo-oriented? Well, you know, I've been paleo-oriented for a long time, and I'm really shifting towards keto okay. at this point, ketogenic diet. And uh, we'll, we'll, we'll go there okay, in a good. little bit. Um, so for prostate cancer, there's a few things that have turned up over the years that are actually pretty remarkable from the natural field. One of them is the antioxidant lycopene, which is what gives tomatoes its red color. Lycopene is an antioxidant substance that absolutely downregulates the growth of abnormal cells in the prostate, uh, prostate cancer cells. There was a landmark study that was done, gosh, probably nine or ten years ago, where they took men with diagnosed prostate cancer who were all heading for radical prostatectomy surgery, and they put half of them on 20 milligrams of lycopene a day, and the other, you know, the others just did whatever they did, and then they restaged them at the time of surgery and found that the guys who'd been taking lycopene across the board, their prostate glands were much smaller and there was much less cancer involved. It didn't eliminate the cancer, but it clearly had an effect. The other substance that I think most of you probably know about is pomegranate extract. Pomegranate has, an, you know, has a, also a, a down-regulating effect on uh, prostate cancer cells. And um, because of that is being used by many men as a preventative. Um, you know, I mean, it's super easy to take lycopene as a supplement, super easy to drink a glass of pomegranate juice or take a, a pomegranate pill or two a day um, to, get, to get the effect um, of those substances as well. Um, one other arcane piece of information that I came across a while back in doing some research for a patient was that nitroglycerin, which is used for heart disease, has an effect on um, nitric, not nitrous, but nitric oxide, which nitric oxide is instrumental in the genesis of prostate cancer cells. And there was one small study that actually looked at men who had prostate cancer, had been treated, and were then assigned to put on a quarter of a nitroglycerin patch, transdermal patch, for 12 hours a day. And they had a much lower incidence of recurrence than the other group did. Nobody ever followed up on this. I never saw a secondary study to look at this, unfortunately. And doctors want to see you know, at least a couple of studies from different institutions to confirm that it's right. But you know, it's cheap at that very low dosage that you get from a quarter of a patch. So at the low dose, it essentially has none of the 
side effects like um, hypotension, low blood pressure, or headaches that people get with the traditional doses of nitroglycerin, nitroglycerin, but it seems to have a salutary effect on helping to treat the cancer. So that was something that I provided to my prostate cancer patients, and I didn't have enough to really gain a clear sense of it, but I, I, it, it seemed like it was helpful. And then, and then, you know, I'm not, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to be just very specific about these, you know, these specific kinds of cancers, but the whole rest of the program that we're talking about in terms of diet, you know, supplements, a lot of the anti-cancer supplements, the whole mind-body approach, the, you know, the community, you know, all of the other, super important. How does one optimize chemotherapy? Make it, how, how does one make it work the best? I've got a couple of tricks that I've learned over the years. One of them, one of our local Marin County practitioners, Michael McCullough, is a licensed acupuncture and also a PhD in public health. Um, and his, you know, part of his personal mission has to, been to get good information about alternative therapies into the mainstream literature. He authored a paper that was published in JCO, Journal of Clinical Oncology, um, a few years back, looking at the results of several studies that had been done by others using astragalus alongside of platinum-based chemotherapies for a variety of, actually it was for lung cancer, it wasn't for a variety of cancers, and found that across the board, the people who took the Chinese herb astragalus, Huangqi, at the same time they were on platinum-based therapies did better, had better responses. I was so excited when I read this, and then I asked some of the oncologists that I knew, I said, hey, what'd you think about that? And they go, what article? But they read that journal, but they were just so uninterested in that that they just glossed over it. Why would they care about a Chinese herb? So anyway, so that is something, and I think that that, even though Michael didn't look at it outside of the lung cancer field, because he knew what statistically was gonna be important was to try to just keep it to one kind of cancer. You know, my belief is that any cancer that's being treated with a platinum-based chemotherapy would do better um, with the addition of astragalus. That's a very common, very common herb. And that article was published in the... JCO. Journal of the... Clinical Oncology. Of clinical Oncology, right. Yeah. And it's under his name. I mean, you can look under... Right. You can search on it that yeah. way. Um, fasting. This is also now in some of the mainstream literature, but it turns out that fasting for 24 hours before chemotherapy actually makes the chemotherapy work better as well. And it may have to do with the fact that the blood sugar is lower in the same way that maybe metformin worked. It has to do with this insulin gate of allowing sugar into the cells. Cancer cells need sugar. Maybe what we're doing at the same time is giving them this cytotoxic, you know, this deadly substance, is that we're also depriving them of their essential nutrients at the same time. But, you know, anymore, and when I'm talking to people who have cancer that are gonna get chemotherapy, I advise them to try to fast for 24 hours. They can drink lots of water, they should drink lots of water, but just, you know, just ramp it down on the nutrition. Um, there is a popular alternative medicine form of treatment called insulin potentiated um, therapy, IPT. I don't know what to say about this one. I have had patients who've done it who have not really gotten any better. And it's, it's usually done, not, it's not done by oncologists, it's done by you know, alternative medicine doctors. And the idea is that they give people a big dose of insulin intravenously, usually in a hospital setting where they're monitored so that they 
can't go into insulin shock from their blood sugar going too low. And then they're given lower doses of chemotherapy. And the idea is it's supposed to work better than regular chemotherapy. It's, there are a number of practitioners who do it. I just, I, I think that the jury's out. I don't know what okay. to say about it. Thank do you. you have, have you had any experience with it? I don't. Anne, what about you? Any? Chris? Okay. Okay. But, you know, you're going to hear it. It comes yeah. up. Um, I don't know that I would. At this point, I, I don't recommend it. I'm also a little nervous about this potential for insulin shock because mm -hmm. that can cause brain damage if, it, if somebody stays down too long. Um, um, I really like fish oil. I think that EPA, DHA, you know, the two major components um, have significant anti-inflammatory effects. And also DHA, docohexanoic acid, is brain food, as I'm sure Anne would love to tell you. <laughs> She's our brain expert here. Um, and EPA, uh, eicosapentaenoic acid, is significantly anti-inflammatory. These are the two major um, omega-3 fatty acids that are present in fish oil. They have an immune-building effect they have an anti-inflammatory effect, and they do have some anti-cancer effect as well. So I think that fish oil supplements um, are a good addition to our regimen. Now, somebody is wondering, well, why not flaxseed oil? Flaxseed oil is not omega-3 fatty acid. It's alpha-linoleic acid, and it's converted by the body somewhat inefficiently into omega-3 fatty acids. But the ratio of, of it is about 20 to 1 which means that if you wanted to get the equivalent of one gram of fish oil, a thousand milligrams, you'd have to take 20 grams of, uh, of flaxseed oil. So, okay, if somebody is an ardent diet in the wool vegetarian and they're just not gonna have it with the fish oil, you know, knock yourself out, drink a half a bottle of flaxseed oil a day. But otherwise, you know, I would say go for the, go for the fish oil. And is fish oil safe is a, is a good question. Most of the fish oils on the market now are molecularly distilled, which means that any mercury, PCBs, PBBs, or other harmful chemicals are distilled out before they ever get to market. What's the dose? Um, I like to look at about three to five grams a day, especially if you're dealing with cancer. The companies that allow third-party testing, third-party independence testing, Nordic Naturals and Metagenics. Mm -hmm. I really like that they allow the third-party independent testing for mercury, lead, and all, all the potential chemicals that accumulate in the ocean Agreed. and in our fish. Right, and you know, and in the same vein, because mercury can be pro-inflammatory, and sometimes pro-inflammatory can also mean pro-cancer. Avoiding the kinds of fish that accumulate mercury is a good idea. Swordfish is probably the highest on that list. Uh, unfortunately, tuna, especially large species tuna, is on the list. King mackerel, grouper, um, those are the big ones that I remember. Then there's a bunch that are intermediate, like black cod um, and mahi-mahi. And then the ones that are lowest on the list, salmon tends to be pretty low across the board. Um, and like many other people, I don't recommend farmed salmon. Um, because of the way they feed them, because they're kept in pens. There are probably some forms of Norwegian farmed salmon that are a little bit better. And if you can get those, you know, probably not bad, but otherwise go for wild Alaska, wild king salmon when and it's available. Tiny fish, sardines, tiny anchovies, fish. mackerel, right. uh, the tiny mackerel and the right. herring. The big predatory fish tend to, it moves up the food chain. 
So as the big fish eats the middle fish eats the little one, the mercury tends to accumulate in the big guys. So, and so for that reason, very small species tuna are probably okay, like bonita. So dietary therapies for cancer. Everybody wants to know, you know, okay, I've had cancer, like what should I eat? What's the safe therapy? Um, the very first dietary therapy I ever heard of for cancer was the Gerson therapy, which started in the 1930s. 1930s. <laughs> 1930s. Um, and it was a diet that was very, very heavy in very sugar-rich juices, vegetable juices, some fruit juices, and also eating tubes of raw liver, which I think was mostly for the vitamin B12 content. But, and the Gerson therapy is still popular um, in some parts of the world. Um, Mexico, there are several Gerson clinics. There's one in Southern California. Um, I experimented it with it myself when I first um, got my cancer, and I just really didn't, intuitively it didn't feel right. And then the more I started researching and looking like, okay, what's the science behind this? I felt like it really fell flat. It just it didn't really have a lot to offer. Um, we know that sugar feeds cancer cells. And so we started moving more in this direction of, okay, we need a diet that's a low glycemic diet. And the low glycemic diets were also becoming very popular for weight loss and for general health. Um, lowering one's risk of type 2 diabetes, um, helping to lose weight. So, um, you know, and glycemic indexes started becoming very popular where you could download something from the internet that would tell you what the sugar value of a particular food was. And then you could tend to go with foods that were lower on that, you know, lower glycemic foods, less impact on your blood sugar, you know, hopefully lower risk of cancer. Um, Keith Block in Chicago had his own version of, you know, of the diet, which I always referred to as Midwest macrobiotic. Um, and um, he and I have been in disagreement with this, but Keith has been macrobiotic for a number of years, and so that's been his bias. But it's a diet that's a little heavier in grains than I would like to see, because grain, all grains have you know, some glycemic load associated with them. I think most of you know quinoa is the lowest on that list. It has the highest percentage of protein, the lowest percentage of carbohydrate, but all the grains can be converted into sugar um, without a, too much work by the body. So going on a low grain, a low grain diet is both anti-inflammatory and potentially anti-cancer. Um, and so that diet more popularly became known as the paleo diet. When you eliminate grains and sugars from the diet, what you've got left is protein-rich foods and healthy fats. And that's what a paleo diet is, or paleolithic diet, because it's felt that that's what our ancestors of thousands of years ago, before we were agricultural-based, when we were still hunter-gatherers, that's what their basic diet was. Um, and they would forage and they would eat some plant materials, but the plant materials that they were eating were not cultivated and they were much richer in naturally occurring alpha-linoleic acid, which the body could convert to some omega-3s. Um, and so for the last you know, several years in my practice, the paleo diet was what I was encouraging people to do for the most part. Um, and most people, once they transitioned over to it, actually liked it and felt pretty good. Um, more recently, we've been looking at the ketogenic diet. Um, the ketogenic diet probably started in the 1960s with um, the diet doctor in New York. Somebody help me. 
um, Atkins. Yes, the Atkins diet, which was a very high-fat diet. Dr. Atkins was promoting this for treatment of cardiovascular disease. Um, and it was absolute, I mean, the American Medical Association went crazy on this. I mean, here's, a doc, here's an internist who was promoting, telling people to eat fat when the American Heart Association and everybody else knew that fat was what caused heart disease. Well, it turns out that that's not really the case, but back then that was the, that, that was the, dominant, um, the, the dominant idea, dominant thought. And historically, uh, Ornish's first big debate was with Atkins before the debate came up with uh, the paleo. So there's a historic uh, trend there, Atkins right. to paleo right. and Ornish on the low-fat right. side. Yeah. Right, right, I know that. Yeah. You're listening to part three of a three-part TNS conversation with Dr. Brian Bausch and host Michael Lerner. Uh, but, you know, the interesting thing that happened was that Mount Sinai Medical University in New York did a study um, with the Atkins diet while he was still alive before mm-hmm. he died. And they put people on either the Atkins diet. And the Atkins diet, it was a little crazy. He wanted people to eat a lot of fat and protein and just eliminate carbohydrates. And he had people, you know, eating bacon and, you know, full and, you know, and saturated, mm-hmm. you know, fats from, you know, heavy meats. And it was just full on high fat diet. Um, anyway, they did this study. Um, some people on an Atkins, some people on an American Heart Association 30% fat diet, and some people just ate whatever they want. And the only, the only people in that study who had any improvement in their cholesterol levels, um, weight, and fitness were the people on the Atkins diet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, that study obviously didn't go anywhere in terms of the way it changes the dominant paradigm, but um, it was interesting nevertheless. And then as we started learning about ketogenic diets, um, ketogenic diets have been popular among performance athletes for, for actually a, couple, a few decades because it looks like the energy that we get from burning and metabolizing fat um, actually lasts for long, lasts for longer in the body. So that if you're not sprinting, if you're doing an endurance thing, you know, like, you know, like a, a marathon run, you know, or a triathlon or, you know, some kind of rowing competition where you're going to be in the water for a few hours, you know, paddling hard, then a ketogenic diet actually optimizes your body composition and gives you enough fuel to be able to get through it better than a high carb diet. So this whole thing about carb loading that people used to do about before events was crazy. You know, it just, I mean, you get a short-term burst from carbo-loading, but you don't get endurance from it. So ketogenic diets are diets that are very high fat, not necessarily in animal fats. We're looking at healthy fats, olive oil, flaxseed oil, um, avocados, um, healthy nuts, like almonds uh, and walnuts, uh, and um, really minimizing, trying to get down to like seven percent or less the amount of fat and uh, of the amount of um, carbohydrate in the diet, all carbohydrates, um, and also trying to reduce the amount of protein. Atkins allowed a lot of protein in the keto diet. It's not a lot of proteins not allowed. We really want roughly eighty-five to ninety percent of the diet to be in the form of fat. Um, I had a little experience experimenting this with this last year. Last summer, I was on a keto diet for about nine days, which they say is kind of the induction period where you know you maybe you don't really start feeling very much. Um, but you know, I mean, after about the fifth or sixth day, I started to feel a burst in my energy. 
Um, we were also checking our urine with little strips that measure the amount of ketone bodies in the urine. Ketone bodies are what we produce metabolically when we're eating a high-fat diet, and the urine should start showing a lot of ketones showing up to indicate that you're now in the state called ketosis, which means that you're running mostly on ketones as fuel. Now, one more step back. In the 1950s, some pediatric neurologist, knowing about the brain's ability to metabolize ketones um, and not needing sugar to survive, looked at kids with untreatable epilepsy and decided that some of those kids might do better by depriving them of sugar and putting them on a high ketone diet. It worked. And every pediatric neurologist knows about this, and a lot of them still use it in addition to the drugs. The drugs have gotten a lot better since then. But nevertheless, you have a way of feeding the brain with ketone bodies, which is one of the reasons why people on ketone diets, uh, the ketogenic diets, feel so good. It's because it's, it's good brain, it's really good brain food. Um, starting about 18 years ago, Mark actually introduced me to a nutritionist who was walking people with central nervous system tumors, specifically glioblastomas, brain tumors, um, through a nutritionist who was helping people with those kinds of tumors go on ketogenic diets because her partner had developed a glioblastoma. They had gone to the ketogenic diet and her partner was still alive five or six years later. Mm -hmm. And if you know that disease, people usually last a year or two. Um, and so I would periodically have an opportunity to work with patients on ketogenic diets, specifically who had brain tumors, and saw that there was benefit. You know, people seemed to last longer. Um, now we're starting to look at ketogenic diets across the board for all kinds of cancer. There's not great data out there to support it, um, but it, I think that it contains all the benefits of the paleo diet in terms of reducing the sugar, which is kind of major number one issue. But also, if you're flooding the body with ketones, ketones don't feed cancer cells. Sugar feeds cancer cells. And so if you've reduced the amount of sugar and substituted it with ketones, and people are metabolically doing okay with that, then you know it, it stands to reason, it's good logic, that it's going to have an effect against all other cancers as well. And as you may have mentioned also, this is something Dwight McKee is, is very... And very interested in. So, and with all his experience, he's he's come to the view that the ketogenic diet is is um, is a very interesting diet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what's fascinating because we kind of enter the stream about the same time is, you know, the diet wars have gone on for a really long time, and uh, you know, when we entered the stream in the early 1970s where we were and just the evolution of all these different therapies, diet therapies is fascinating. Rebecca Katz's work is uh, on the kind of paleo end of the spectrum. I'm not sure it's on the ketogenic end. It's not. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I just want to add that the ketogenic diet is, is a critical piece of the reversal of cognitive decline program. Great. Oh, that's really helpful. So, you know, and I also want to say, in case people aren't real familiar with the ketogenic diet, you, when you look at uh, a plate of food, you can look, the, the plate of food on a ketogenic diet, you can have three quarters of the plate covered with vegetables. It's not a low vegetable diet, right? Because vegetables are very, fairly neutral as far as their carb content because they're high in fiber. So I'm like, I don't want you to be picturing 
you know, you're just drinking cups of olive oil all day or, you know, just nuts and nothing else. It can be a huge variety of, of vegetables. You add olive oil whenever you can to your vegetables. You cook with avocado oil. And you have bulletproof coffee for breakfast, right? Bulletproof coffee, absolutely. What's bulletproof coffee? Absolutely. And, and people can do it without eating um, very much saturated fat at all. Some people... Some people in, in the, uh, who are high risk for Alzheimer's disease carry an Apple E4 gene and they do not handle saturated fats as well as people who do not carry that gene. And so, uh, you know, some of our, you know, folks um, uh, who are Apple E4, they put pictures of, their, of what they're eating up and they're on a 70% fat diet, a 75% diet, but their plates of food all vegetables, they just have some nuts added, they have some sardines added, they have, etc. Et so, just to give a picture of it, yeah. Yeah, a traditional part of the ketogenic <laughs> diet has become bulletproof coffee. In what the is that? It's coffee mixed with um, coconut oil, MCT oil, which is actually a derivative of coconut, but much higher in medium chain triglycerides, cream, full fat cream and butter and wow. blended butter and cream that's your version huh? okay that's our version Go for it. and it's and you blend it and so it turns it into this frothy little amazing concoction that chris's wife is an expert in making <laughs> and i would crawl to their kitchen sometimes for it <laughs> um, and coffee is actually you know okay let's talk about coffee for a second because coffee has from the health perspective has had a bad rap. But in the last few years, what we found is that coffee is actually incredibly beneficial for the liver um, because it increases bile flow in the same way that we were talking about, you know, how important it is to get the toxins out of the body. Um, so coffee does that and coffee in the rectum does it with greater efficiency than coffee taken orally. And this is the rationale behind coffee enemas. Right. It gets absorbed from the colon, from the large intestine, into the portal vein, which goes directly to the liver, so that the coffee is delivered, you know, 80% of it goes directly to the liver, whereas when you drink coffee, only about 20% of it gets to the liver. And it has this effect of increasing bile flow, probably from the palmitic acid in the coffee. And coffee enemas used to be in the Merck manual, so it used mm -hmm. to be a accepted mainstream therapy. The coffee also has a substance called chlorogenic acid in it, yeah. which is something that has a tendency to help lower blood sugar yeah. um, and helps to promote weight loss as well. So coffee has a lot of benefits to it. Now, recently, coffee's been taken to task because of acrylamides that can be present from the processing of the coffee, mm -hmm. and acrylamides can be carcinogenic. I don't know what to think about that, but I love coffee so much that I'm tending to <laughs> shuffle that one aside a little bit. Um, we'll see where that goes, but you know, I think mm -hmm. that that's something that needs to be watched, yeah. the whole thing with acrylamides yeah. and coffee. And of course, the, in my view, the coffee needs to be organic, um, and it should probably be light roast instead of dark roast, because the dark roasting, we think, uh, is what probably increases the amount mm -hmm. of acrylamides that are right. present in it. But everything that's roasted then, you know, any food that you eat that's roasted, it would seem to me should be then also equally labeled a carcinogen. Right. Because roasting is the 
what produces the equipment. Right. And when's the last time you walked into a restaurant in California that didn't have a sign on the wall that said, some things produced in this facility may be carcinogenic according to the state of California? Mm -hmm. <laughs> We've got disclaimers everywhere. So where do you want to take us next? Um, you know, I might be pretty close to done at this point. And Good, because I, I have some other questions. Yeah, and we'll open, open it to it questions. Okay. Uh, question about supplements. Um, we all know that the supplement industry is unregulated and that when you do careful testing of supplements, a lot of them don't contain what they say they contain. The markups are often very high, all kinds of problems. Uh, what is your guidance to patients or, for that matter, practitioners on, uh, on the, the brands you trust or the approach you trust uh, to getting high-quality supplements? Oh, boy. You know, it's been kind of a trial and error yeah. and seat-of-the-pants right. decision over the years because yeah. as part of my practice, we also had a natural remedy store. Right. So we were selling product and some people would think that that's a conflict of interest mm -hmm. but in my view it was a way of providing things to people that we had vetted and knew right. about right uh, um, over the years the companies that i grew to trust were allergy research group mm -hmm. which has you know been around for a long time mm -hmm. uh, metagenics mm -hmm. designs for health mm -hmm. pure encapsulations um, they just got bought by Nestle. So we'll see what happens. No. Wow. What? what? Yes. Oh, they got bought. Pure got bought by just, Nestle's? Yeah. Wow. This was oh, no. like two weeks ago. Nestle, right? Well, you know, I, 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 I have a small investment in a company that, that has a natural way of accelerating the growth of tree seedlings um, into hardy plants ready you know, for agriculture. Um, that now is focused on the cocoa industry and has you know, several um, contracts with uh, companies in Ghana, which is a very big cocoa growing industry. Mm. And I just got a newsletter from them talking about how the, co the, the cocoa growing industry um, is really envir very environmentally unsound overall. Mm. Um, is you know destroying vital nutrients yeah. in the lands. Uh, you know is really really creating you know wholesale agricultural problems, and the demand for chocolate worldwide is so huge that they can hardly meet the supply. So they're just you know they're being irresponsible. And the company was sending this out to you know just because they wanted you know people to know, and they included a link to a website that shows the companies that have a. Um, that have already signed off on using environmentally sustainable practices. Right. So in other words, they'll only buy their cocoa from growers that they know are using environmentally sustainable practices. And believe it or not, Nestle's was on the top of that list. Hmm. <laughs> Blew my mind. The people who you know, were you know, robbing kids of breast milk. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, I, you know, I'm happy to pass that on to you and you can send it out. Okay. To that, to that link. It's very interesting. So your response is that it was trial and error and that your, your practice ended up with a, a, a supplement store that represented the things that you had found. Yeah. And then that... Um, Vitanica is another good company, V-I-T-A-N-I-C-A. Okay. Oh, so it's, gosh, it's a, it, that's something I, I mean, I've been thinking about this for years, but it's such an issue for people 
spending a lot of money on yeah. supplements to be sure they're getting. And what I actually they are. went to the Metagenics um, plant one year to mm -hmm. visit it. I wanted to see how are they doing this and mm -hmm. had a tour through the plant. I was very, you weren't on that one, you didn't go. Um, I was very impressed mm -hmm. with it. I felt like their quality control was excellent, their you know, standards mm -hmm. for sterility, um, you know, looking to make sure that what, you know, what was supposed to be in the product was in the product mm -hmm. when they did aftermarket testing, pulling stuff off the shelves mm -hmm. and, you know, of their own stuff in the markets. So mm -hmm. I looked at that with Metagenics. They're a high-end company, they're expensive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, often the quality supplements are from higher-end companies. Mm -hmm. So if people are trying to save money by buying something at CVS, you know, that's a CVS brand of, you know, some vitamin or other, I'm not sure I would trust it. No, absolutely, absolutely. If that's somebody's only option because right. they can't afford it otherwise, yeah. So if we step back, and first of all, thank you for this list of specifics. And if we step back from the specifics, um, patients trying to figure out who to see, where to go, um, the mainstream oncology, as you say, my brother is acting chair of the Department of Oncology and Hematology at, at BU. So I have a, and just have a tremendous respect for mainstream oncology. But as you point out, it's often overused uh, and, um, and people just don't know about both the integrative end of this and the overlooked novel therapies, wherever, however we want to describe them, the metformins and so forth of this world. So how are we going to make progress on this? I mean, we've identified the naturopathic oncologists as a resource, right? That, you know, uh, that, as you said, you, you came to have a naturopathic flavor or whatever to your, your practice. And Chris is a, a naturopath. Um, uh, but given what's happening to the individual integrative oncologists like Keith Blocks, who faces these challenges that, you know, on, on facing more expensive costs for chemo and so on than somebody who's part of one of the big chains and everything else, where, where are the practitioners, where, where, do, where do people find the practitioners? And... And who are the people who do what you and Keith are doing in terms of guiding people? Now, now as you know, at the, uh, there was uh, this year at Commonweal, one of Mark Renneker's conferences, which you were at, um, he completed the training of a whole set of new guides. And that group of guides asked if they could become a, a, a project of Commonweal, uh, which we're calling the a Commonweal um, Medical Advocacy Collaborative. And so we've just begun to make that available uh, to people as, as a way to find guides. But that's just a very tiny fraction of, of the need. So when you think about how, how today and how in the future we can move this truly vital field forward, what, what do you think? How do you look at it? You know, I tend to stay in the trenches. Right. With it. And in terms of trying to go larger scale, I made a few forays into that. Mm -hmm. I think you remember I was 
the medical director of um, Consensus Health, mm-hmm. and, um, and we had a very big. We had we you know we had a a very aggressive stance on trying to get the information out about alternative cancer therapies through a very large website, and also working with insurance companies to try to get them to pay for alternative therapies, mm-hmm. and we started to gain a little traction, and then it all collapsed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, taking the step of formalizing the medical advocacy training, which mm-hmm. I helped Mark with, yeah, so that you know we now have a you know a fairly good. That's right. Group you went to the senior senior staff with Mark. Yeah. About, yeah. So doing that, that's a move in that direction for yeah. us. Before that, Mark trained a handful of us right. to do the same kind of work, and you know we would all be kind of overloaded because mm-hmm. people, you know, I mean we. Mark has a six-month waiting list. Yeah, he's got people calling him with fourth stage, you know, stage four cancer. You know, mm-hmm. he feels terrible about it. You know, and so we now have a group of people trained. Mm-hmm. He tried to get UCSF involved in that; they wouldn't mm-hmm. have it. Mm-hmm. Um, so he said, "He said, well, I'll call Michael and see mm-hmm. if Michael can host mm-hmm. us." And, yeah. you know, and here we were, mm-hmm. and it's been it's been really rewarding. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they've got the skills now to be able to do the you know the mm-hmm. advocacy work. They still have communication and availability to Mark and the other mentors. Mm-hmm. And we actually are having a meeting tomorrow at my house of the, of the whole mentorship group. We get together monthly. And when I'm out on my sailboat somewhere in the South Pacific, I call in and I'm, I'm, I'm the guy on the phone mm-hmm. with the rest of the group. Well, that's very reassuring. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so, so I would think that trying to use that as a template and expanding from that somehow to get more doctors trained you know, I mean, a true, you know, rigorous training program really needs a university, mm-hmm. you know, behind it to, for the infrastructure and stuff. And just, I don't know, maybe that'll happen, maybe it won't. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Eric Jamison, you know, who Eric is, yeah. Eric has been very instrumental in handling a lot of the administrative aspects of right. it. Because um, Mark, Mark's more of kind of the right. visionary. Right. And says, we ought to do this. And everybody goes, oh, that's a great idea. Let's do it. <laughs> So um, I think that's the way I see it. It's just going to be kind of growing mm-hmm. from this seed and trying to expand mm-hmm. out, you know, as Thank more you. people learn about it. Yeah. Chris, I want to come back to you. You've been listening to all of this and commenting, but uh, what would you add to this uh, in terms of your experience and perception of uh, the work? Yeah, I think, you know, as a naturopathic doctor, we've been trained to look at the cause and I, I feel like the conventional world um, doesn't really look well at the fact that we're living in a toxic soup of chemicals in us. And so we're the handful of doctors that will actually do toxicology testing um, of the most common things that we can cheaply test for. And I always find a bunch of high, high level 95th centile carcinogens in my patients, different sets. Some of them follow different patterns based on what type of cancer they've got and and I, I also think that the cancer comes back if you leave those chemicals in people so that's kind of a little bit of a different take on this that we come from. You were involved with uh, the response to the fires in Sonoma County the vast fires that wiped out so many thousands of homes um, and uh, actually, my wife, Cheryl Patton, has been testing the frontline um, firefighters for their levels of chemicals. She tested 200 firefighters, uh, control group of 100, and another 100 who were on the front lines. 
So, and Kira Epstein uh, has been coordinating the conversations that we've done in Sonoma through the New School, which I know you've been part of. So, uh, have you been working with a lot of people who had those exposures in the fires? Absolutely. Um, the way we look at an event like that is you're now exposed to a lot of carcinogens, um, burning petroleum, burning plastics, burning metals, and we thought it to be prudent to um, teach the population how to detox rapidly. And uh, Peter Koshland from Koshland Pharmacy was kind enough to send us a, about $10,000 worth of glutathione that we treated people for free with. Um, my wife, as well as a woman named Jenny Haro, organized a massive um, push to get practitioners in every fire station, every shelter, every National Guard unit um, during those times. So for about three weeks after, I was with um, mostly in Petaluma, but also in Santa Rosa at the National Guard units. So I was working with search and rescue and making sure that um, they understood the toxic exposure that they had and that they seeked out uh, appropriate treatment. I don't want to wait 10 years till these guys get cancer. I want to get it out now. Um, so that's, that's kind of the way we look at things. You know, this is an interesting story, but right after 9-11, I went back to New York while the buildings were still smoking and everything. Mm -hmm. And I've had an interest in detox for a long time. And um, one of the members of one of our uh, listservs was a guy who was expert on a lot of tox stuff. And he was a Scientologist, right? Well, I don't have any brief for Scientology, but um, they had set up a clinic in Manhattan just below the 9-11 site uh, where they were treating a lot of first responders. And the first responders they were treating had gone to mainstream medicine and been you know, pumped up on different things, but nobody was doing detox. So I walked into this clinic and um, it was extraordinary. They had all these guys with a, you know, a detox regimen and then doing saunas and go working out on bicycles. And they had the towels that they had toweled off with from the sweat. And you could see these rainbow of chemical mm. colors on the towels, you know. So I entered into a conversation with them. And of course, they, they did not want to say that Scientologists had been involved in setting up the clinic. They happened to be Scientologists and so on. And I encouraged them to do a, a real clinical trial, and they were not interested in doing that. But I've known people who've gone to independent physicians who trained in the Scientology system of detox who've had really exceptional responses. And the Scientologists themselves have done an extraordinary uh, review of the world literature on detox with a lot of studies from the Soviet Union and elsewhere. So, as I say, I have no brief either for or against Scientology, bless people who like it, bless people who don't. But the detox stuff that they've done seemed to me to be a contribution to the it field. Was the purification rundown. Excuse me? The purification rundown. Yeah. I did, I did it in the 80s. Oh, you did? Yeah. And it was the best I've ever felt. I mean, uh -huh. at that time of my life. Interesting. But, uh, yeah. I went through the whole thing. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm Scientology yeah. for some time. But uh, I have to say, of all the different things that I didn't like about Scientology, that was the one thing that I thought was mm -hmm. that stuff. Mm -hmm. 
Michael, but Michael, what were they doing? Yeah, I mean, it what, sounds what like they were doing sauna. What was their detox? They had a... Does anybody know this better than I do? What? I do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what do I'm do? sorry. Yeah. Uh, they do um, exercise, yeah. sweating saunas, yeah. um, what, what Hubbard called CalMag. Basically, it was a, a, a cider vinegar mixed with calcium magnesium and some oil. You drank a lot of oil. Mm -hmm. And you would have this before you go every day to the sauna regimen. And you would, we would sit in the sauna and sweat, and we'd run, and we'd come back, and we'd drink lots of water and take our CalMag. And it, I mean, it just kind of makes sense. That's awesome. That, you know, you, you're replacing <laughs> the fats. <laughs> the idea was to replace the fats that you were getting rid of and putting lots of extra fat in your body. And of all the different things that, you know, were pretty weird about Scientology, mm -hmm. um, that was one of the things that I thought really made sense. And I felt, you know, I was in my early, mid-twenties, but I felt really great. Chris, did you say... That will increase the bile flow, which will increase yeah. uh, colon, the colon clean-out. Yeah. Yeah. Also, fat-soluble toxins will go to that fat yeah. gradient as well. Right. Yeah. You're listening to part three of a three-part TNS conversation with Dr. Brian Bausch and host Michael Lerner. It's just an interesting it's piece great. of the... Yeah. I, I, what I'd love to do is get my hands on the multi-volume set of uh, studies of the world literature on detox that I saw on their shelf in this, uh, at this clinic. But it, it was striking. And again, you know, we are living in this incredibly toxic world. That has been a big part of our work at Commonweal, Dr. Ted Shetler, the head of the medical director of the Collaborative on Health and the Environment and the Science and Environmental Health Network, which is uh, here, and a longtime colleague, uh, has been a, a deep part of that work. And actually, let me take a moment um, to introduce Ted. And uh, Ted, could you just say a word, because it's so relevant to this, about the your book, uh, the ecology of breast cancer and your basic thesis about the ecological paradigm of health. Sure, thanks. Um, my background is in medicine, but also in public and environmental health. Uh, and my work has been an attempt to sort of reintegrate medicine with public and environmental health because they've been so separated for the last hundred years for reasons that we all sort of understand. So when I began thinking about breast cancer and the origins of breast cancer uh, with an aim towards thinking about prevention, uh, it became apparent to me that um, there are some countries that have low incidence of breast cancer compared to others. Um, as they westernize in their development, breast cancer increases. When people move from countries with low breast cancer incidence to countries with high breast cancer incidence, their risk of breast cancer goes up. And if you look across these observations, you can't point to one or two things that explain that. But rather, it's sort of a, a, an ecological shift. Lots of things change. The, the chemicals that we've been talking about, diets change, activity levels change, Social uh, interactions change, uh, uh, and, and these aren't only at the individual level, but they're also at the community level and at the societal level. So it seemed to me that bringing ecological thinking 
to those observations might be useful. And what I mean by that is that, you know, ecologists think about the behavior of an ecological system in ways that are very different from the ways that in, in reductionist medicine we, we tend to think about, about causes of disease. Patterns of disease emerge out of ecological conditions. And so if we're going to think about the prevention of something like breast cancer, it seemed to me that we need to think about a multifactorial approach that was also at a multiple level approach. Not only what can we do as individuals, but what can we do as communities and as societies to try to shift the system conditions that are uh, uh, leading to, to the disease patterns that we see. And it's not just breast cancer because other common diseases emerge along with breast cancer at the same time. And, and so, and, and, and to think about it across time, across the life course as well. So, so I was very interested, uh, Ryan, when you were talking earlier today about epigenetics and about how chemicals or dietary factors can influence the expression of genes. Mm -hmm. um, and it, I was reminded of a, a very recent paper that was published, recent, just very recently, showing that DDT uh, in the serum levels are correlated with the epigenetic markers on the BRCA gene, mm -hmm. the BRCA gene. So that's the connection. Mm -hmm. so, pardon me? That's the connection. Because we've always known that DDT was a risk so, factor. Yeah. So DDT in adulthood levels, the, 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 the evidence was mixed about whether it was linked to breast cancer. But recent studies have shown that higher levels of DDT exposure in utero and in childhood are associated with a much higher risk of breast cancer decades later. Mm. Mm. But now we know something about a potential mechanism. Because the DDT zero <coughs> was putting an epigenetic marker on the BRCA gene. Even if it was a normal BRCA gene, not a mutated BRCA gene, but a normal mm. BRCA gene. Turning it off mm. so that the DNA repair mechanism in the babies and in their lives follow uh, was not working as well mm -hmm. because of this in utero exposure. So this is a design problem. This is a societal problem. I mean, these people yeah. weren't purposefully exposing themselves to DDT. We put, it into, we put it into our food. We put it into the environment. I used to ride my bicycle behind the DDT yeah. trucks right. bringing from mosquitoes right. in my town. That was fun. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, anyway, thinking about the mixture of the medical approach and the public health approach, I think, sort of opens up some ideas about how we might begin to think about prevention and conceivably treatment at societal levels as well as individual levels. Uh, Great. So the, the complementary. Yeah, thank you. I'd just like to build on that for a moment because um, Ted's thinking about the ecology of health has been fundamental to what we've been working on through the Collaborative on Health and the Environment, which is www.healthandenvironment.org for the last 20 years, so that taking an ecological approach to health, as he was just talking about with breast cancer, is fundamental to us. And so what fascinates me is that if you take an ecological approach to health and you ask what form of medicine fits with the ecological paradigm of health, guess what? It's not reductive Western medicine. What it fits with 
is integrative medicine, functional medicine, naturopathic medicine, because the bottom line, uh, etiologically, is that different people get the same disease for different reasons. They come into it from different uh, pathways that converge into common pathways. So if different people have gotten breast cancer or asthma or learning disabilities or whatever it is for different reasons, then in so much as etiology remains relevant, you wouldn't expect everybody to respond to the same treatment. Guess what? You would want to try to figure out which etiological <laughs> pathways they came in on and therefore which potential stressors were most relevant. Mm. So the really... So just coming back to the starting of Commonweal, which we did together, Commonweal started with a vision of healing ourselves and healing the earth. And it's very hard to be healthy people on a sick planet. And the reality of the situation is that for all the activism that so many of us have been involved with for the last 30 or 40 years, the planet is getting sicker. And in fact, the people who really look at this, and I've been looking at it in depth, uh, if you want to take a look at the faninitiative.net. You look at the global challenges that are going on. The scientists who are looking at this in depth, Paul Ehrlich from Stanford and others, really believe that there's a very good chance that we're headed for a civilizational collapse in another 20 or 30 years. I mean, just the stressors are just increasing. You know, climate, toxic chemicals, you know, uh, uh, how many crop years are left on food, you know, foods, population. There's at least a dozen. You could count 20 different major stressors. Um, and those same stressors on, on the earth as a whole, on, you know, biodiversity loss higher than it's ever been since the end of the age of dinosaurs. So there's this tremendous loss in biodiversity. Guess what? That converts into the a loss of biodiversity in our gut biomes and everything else. So the medicine for the individual and the medicine for the planet are essentially the same medicines at a deep level, you know? And so what we're really struggling with as we think about how we're trying to bring this integrative, functional, naturopathic, medical paradigm back in, along with all the benefits of good technological medicine, is the medicine we need for the planet as well, you know? So this is very profound stuff, you know? And, um, and, and so the fight is against high odds, is a fight for the future of the earth and the future of human health and the health of nature. So it all fits together in a really fundamental way. And it's no surprise that it's hard to be healthy people on a sick planet, you know? Brian, any last thoughts or comments as we enter our last 10 minutes of the conversation? Actually, as you were speaking just now, I was thinking about the Malthusian theory of yeah. overpopulation and yeah, where right. we're headed with that and how that's yeah. converging with this thing about lack of biodiversity. Yeah, right. It's, uh, it's kind of bad news. It is kind of bad news. It's bad news. Mm-hmm. And that combined with the fact that you know, with our current political situation, that we don't have leaders that are thoughtful no. and proactive in terms no, of helping don't. with that at all. So, you know, how do we work at larger levels? I'm a little bit at a loss mm-hmm. for that. As I said, you know, I just tend to work from the small to slowly expanding, hoping hoping that that works mm-hmm. to some degree. Um, I would encourage 
people who are dealing with cancer diagnoses to not limit their care to just the conventional oncologist, but to seek out and find um, a skilled um, practitioner of natural medicine. And, and, and that person should also be open to the mainstream treatments and supportive of them as long as they're appropriate for the condition. Mm -hmm. But really working with a combined approach like that is really what's mm -hmm. likely to get people the best, uh, the best outcome. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What is, um, pursuant to that, what is your wisdom around finding that practitioner? Um, it's a little, when you dive into the data and the research and get all the recommendations from your friends, it's a little overwhelming, um, other than sort of waiting for that person to walk through your door. So in your experience as a clinician, what, what advice can you give us? Right, so if you're, if you're looking, you know, I mean, there are a lot of, there are a lot of general oncologists around who will take on pretty much all kinds of cancer to treat. And then there are some who specialize. I mean, there are some who really just want to work with breast or just want to work with, you know, gastrointestinal cancers or colon cancer. Um, what makes sense is to, and sometimes you need to travel. Sometimes you just, you can't stay in your, your local home community. You've got, I mean, in my case, I wound up going to MD Anderson to get the definitive opinion on what I should do. Um, and that worked really well for me. Um, I've sent patients um, as far as New York um, or Florida for specific practitioners because of, you know, my knowledge of the network. And so an advocate is somebody who can help you find the right practitioner. Uh, Michael just mentioned, the, you know, this, this advocacy training program that we've had going on. It's just come up on its second year of its inception. What that means is that we've got about eight or nine doctors now who have gone through the program who can help anybody with any, any type of condition, whether it's cancer or other, be able to try to start mapping out the right route, which includes finding the right practitioners <coughs> for their condition. So I would say that that's probably the best way to go at this talking. point. Yeah. Any other questions, comments? Yeah. This sort of maybe feels like left field, but I'm curious. Um, hyperthermia has been coming up a lot for me recently. People have been mentioning it as a treatment. I believe it's mostly approved in conjunction with chemo or radiation in the US. But I wondered if you've heard about it, if you have any opinions about it. So most of the hyperthermia work was done in Germany, and there's still clinics there who that specialize in it. Um, I have not been impressed with it as a treatment mode. Mm -hmm. That's my that's my bottom line on it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you were going to touch base on cannabis. Oh Do yeah, we forgot cannabis. That? Yeah. Do you have some? Uh, <laughs> <not> <laughs> <laughs> we. <laughs> um, well, California is a great place to be now if you want to, you know, for cannabis. But, you know, I mean, starting probably 15 years ago, we started getting some inklings that um, CBD, cannabidiol, CBD, which is one component of the marijuana plant, seemed to have some anti-cancer effects. And the first mainstream research was done on rats with experimental brain tumors. And it really, I mean, it really seemed to work. Um, since then, there has not been a lot of mainstream research. Donald Abrams, who's one of the people, did he did he get into this much in his we, talk? We, yeah, yes. Okay, good. Yeah. So, but I mean, please repeat what you, you know. Don, well, he, Don's had so much more experience with yeah. this than I have, but you know, I, I would say that that CBD in its various forms and strengths does have an anti-cancer effect, 
And it's also very beneficial for dealing with some of the side effects of chemotherapy. Mm -hmm. um, some of the depressions, you know, certainly the nausea and vomiting, some of the pain. Yeah. Um, I think it's a very, very, very important, useful adjunct in cancer treatment. And safe. And very safe. And, you know, and even people who are long-term marijuana smokers, interestingly, do not have an increased incidence of pulmonary disease, including lung cancer, chronic bronchitis, all that. You would think that they would, but they don't. And they think that, you know, part of the reason that they don't have an increased incidence of lung cancer is because of the anti-cancer yeah. effect in the cannabidiol that's blocking any of the irritating effect on the bronchial mucosa that could potentially trigger, you know, cancer cell growth. So, yeah, I'm... I'm a proponent of it. I think that there are CBD tinctures and extracts that are available at the marijuana dispensaries now that have, excuse me, a lot of usefulness. Most of the dispensaries, the people that work there have a pretty good idea about, you know, what's good and what's not. Did Don get to cover some of that in his talk? Uh, he didn't talk too much about the specifics of dispensaries, no. Or about what specific substances to use in the setting of cancer. No, cancer. he didn't talk about that. He didn't that. go there, no. yeah. And I don't consider myself an expert on that at all. I would use, usually turn people over to someone in the dispensary who I knew had pretty good knowledge of it. But you know, some of the CB, some of the extracts are really good for sleep and anxiety. Some of them have more potent anti-inflammatory, anti-cancer effects. But they definitely have a very sorry we left that out. Very important place in the treatment of cancer. Thanks for bringing that up. There is a cancer specialist at one of the dispensaries in the Castro. Mm. Her name is Sarah Patton. Great. And um, in my Kaiser oncologist. Referred me to her, which was wonderful. That's great. I'm going to meet with her in a couple of weeks. And I just heard about an, a, a nurses collective in um, somewhere in the Bay Area, I think maybe in the East Bay, of nurses who've been specifically studying cannabis use um, in various conditions, including cancer, and you know can meet with individual patients to to look at what's going on with them and make specific recommendations on what to use, what strength, how often, etc. Because dosing is always an issue, as well. Are there any treatments specific to uh, neuroendocrine cancers um, that you can share? Yeah, there is one. Uh, and I don't know how available it is in this country now, but it's called MIBG. And it is a radioactive substance that's bonded to the norepinephrine molecule, which neuroendocrine cancer cells accumulate. And so it's a smart bomb. It's given by intravenous administration. It tends to go to the neuroendocrine cells, lock onto them with a lethal radiation dose, but that that radiation is in microparticles and doesn't affect much of the rest of the body. Um, Duke was doing this six or seven years ago. Um, they had to stop doing it because the American supplier of the MIBG substance um, wasn't making enough money and stopped making it available. Yeah. The last time I looked at this was, you know, several years ago, but Royal George Hospital in London was uh, making it available and doing it. There's a neuroendocrine clinic in Kenner, Louisiana. There's a Dr. Campos. That was doing that years ago. Oh, great. I didn't know about that. So that, that might be something to follow up on. Great. Good tip. Anybody else? Yeah. To circle back around to the anti-angiogenesis, do you have any thoughts about using zinc for that? There was something, I think, out of Mayo about it being effective even in lymphoma, which, of course, we don't think of as there being a tumor to 
cut blood supply too. So I'm just and wondering about your experience with zinc. For I actually sort of I actually powder. don't know anything about zinc mm -hmm. as an anti-angiogenic agent. Mm -hmm. That's the first I've actually heard of it. It's quite mm -hmm. possible that it has anti-angiogenic properties, but I just don't know. It mm -hmm. competes with copper for transport, exactly. so I can ah, see. Okay, that's the link. And part of part of that whole copper chelation protocol that we use is using the drug tetrothiomolybdate and also a low copper diet, and also using zinc to help to, to replace some of the copper because they they do that switch, like sodium and potassium do. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Somebody suggested for me, I think, molybdenum or something like that as a copper chelator? No, it has to be the other one. It has to be tetrothiomolybdate. And actually, N-acetylcysteine, which is a natural supplement, also has some copper chelating properties as well. So it's one of the natural things that can be used along with that. N-acetyl, A-C-E-T-Y-L, cysteine, C-Y-S-T-E-I-N-E. Chris, did you have another comment? No. Okay. Brian Bausch, uh, thank you with all my heart for coming back to Commonweal and for being with us at the New School. It's always it's a pleasure, Michael. Thank wonderful. You. Thank you. So. You've been listening to part three of a three-part TNS conversation with Dr. Brian Bausch and host Michael Lerner. Thank you for listening to TNS, the New School at Commonweal. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Ciani. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, and Vimeo. Thanks for listening.